Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. The question is not whether technology is good or whether it's bad for us. Um, I think that might've been the question a few years ago, but now technology is part of our lives. So I think the better question is, what do we do with it, <laughs> right? Um, as William Shakespeare once said, there's nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. And so I think positive psychology has some really important lessons for us to learn about what that means in terms of how we use technology and specifically what I call the how, when, where, and why of, that, of using technology in our lives. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Amy, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. My pleasure. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So it is really cool to have you. I came across uh, your story by way of Sean Aker, who I also learned uh, from reading the forward to your book is your brother, which is really interesting since he's been here and his wife, Michelle, has been here. So at this point, we're pretty much just going through all the members in your family as, as potential guests <laughs> on the show. Um, so I know one half of the answer to this question, having read the Ford, but I want to start with this question because I think it'd be really interesting. Uh, what birth order were you and what impact uh, has that had on the choices that you have made with your life and your career? Ooh, great question. So my brother uh, will tell you that he is 28 years old and that he has been for the past 10 years. Um, (laughs) But the truth is that he is two years, two days, two minutes, two pounds and two ounces older and bigger than I was. (laughs) Um, But that has not stopped me from being his bossy younger sister all the way from birth through now. So (laughs) glad to uh, get to play my role there. So what I mean, what impact has that had uh, on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Well, you know, I remember being about seven years old when my brother and I were visiting some friends out in California and the brother and sister ran a paper route together. They woke up at four in the morning and they wound up running the paper route together. And I saw them as they were coming back from their paper route, having this great time laughing and hanging out together. And I remember saying at that time, you know what, when I wake up, when I grow up, I want to work with my brother too. Uh, My brother has no recollection of this, but (laughs) I remember it very distinctly. It was very formative for me. And so as Sean and I got older, we wound up doing a lot of the same activities, probably because my parents didn't want to carpool us everywhere, every which way. But we, wound up doing piano together and we debated together and we're on the same debate team for years and went on all the way to to state UIL um, debate um, competition together. And then when Sean left for college, he left to go to Harvard. And I remember feeling a little bit left behind at that point um, and trying to figure out who I was in the midst of that. And so Sean uh, invited me to come up to Harvard and I realized I, 
I wanted to go to Harvard too. It was everything I was looking for in terms of activation and politics and students from different backgrounds. It was amazing. Um, so when it came time for me to go to college, I applied to Harvard and I just crossed my fingers. I know it was hard to get in, but they actually put me on the wait list and I was devastated. Um, and so I wound up going to Rice my freshman year of college and really at the end of that year felt like that was not the right fit. My parents encouraged me to reapply to Harvard. I did. They accepted me and I was able to transfer into Harvard. And so I wound up following Sean to Harvard as well. And while we were there, it became interesting how the worlds continued to collide. Sean wound up teaching the Science of Happiness course at Harvard, and he became a, a head teaching fellow for that program. I had been studying uh, psychology as well. And when he wound up leaving and going on to study divinity school. I thought that might be the end of our paths crossing. <laughs> and, uh, and it so was not. Um, a couple years later, I had gotten my MBA and Sean approached me and said, Hey, Amy, I've got this great idea for a company. I need some, some business help. I, I wrote out a business plan. What do you think? And he handed me this sheet of paper and I said, Sean, that's a that's a Starbucks napkin, not a business plan. And he's like, no, 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 I know. Like, just hear me out. And um, he proceeded to tell me about some of the research that he'd been doing through the Science of Happiness course at Harvard and about how impactful it had been to audiences all over the globe. And by the time he finished um, talking to me about this, I decided that it was actually a really good idea to start a happiness company in the midst of the greatest economic recession we'd had because that was the time that people needed to hear those messages most. It was when most people had this great sense of uncertainty and were looking for answers beyond themselves. And so we began that day about 10 years ago, um, starting this positive psychology consulting organization that we now call Good Think. And I thought I was only helping out for maybe two weeks part time, you know, get my brother started and then I'd go on to do my thing. And here I am 10 years later, uh, working side by side with him and just thrilled to have the opportunity to live out my my seven year old dream to work <laughs> with my brother. Wow. OK, very cool. You know, I mean, I'm I'm not anywhere as near as close to my sister as you are to Sean. Um, so it, this is a question out of morbid curiosity. What is it that enables siblings to have that kind of a connection and bond? Because I've always wondered about it, despite having a sibling and not having that kind of bond with my own, um, but seeing it in other siblings. You know, it's interesting you say that because I have three children of my own now uh -huh. and they don't have the same kind of bond that Sean and I did either. And I <laughs> I keep wondering what I'm doing differently that my parents must have done um, along the way to help us become such good friends. But I honestly think that Sean was a really um, compassionate, empathetic person from the very beginning. My parents tell these stories of him cleaning my bedroom for me when I was like, I was two years old and he'd come in and clean my room. And then as we got older, um, that switched and somehow I wound up cleaning his room. And um, <laughs> so there's just a weird, a weird dynamic. But I do think that my parents really valued family. They really did emphasize the importance of creating memories and um, keeping the nuclear family to have a very strong bond and sense of identity. And so just since it was the two of us, it really seemed to, to click. I, I wish I knew the secret, though, to re replicate it with my own children, but maybe that's something you grow into or, or find your way later in life. So I have I actually have a theory about this. Um, 
Yeah, you said your age gap is two years with Sean. Mine and my sister's is five years. And I've noticed all my friends who are siblings that are incredibly close to their siblings have either no age gap, like my business partner, Brian, and his sister are twins, or their age gap is around two years. Interesting. Maybe there's something about the level of competition that we face when somebody is too too close or too far apart, but that mm-hmm. two-year gap might be a, sort of a sweet spot, perhaps. Who knows? Well, you know, the thing about being so far apart is, you know, with a five-year age gap, like I remember I was a senior in high school and my sister was in seventh grade. So it was pretty hard to relate to her. I, I remember the moment when I realized my sister and I could finally relate. It was when she started doing things I knew my parents would disapprove of. Uh, <clears throat> she came, uh, I came home from college and she said, can you buy me alcohol for a party? And I was like, finally, common ground. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I do have to say that my brother did spend some time dating some of my friends in high school. So that might be part of why he wanted to be so close as well. So (laughs) maybe I had that going for me. (laughs) So, you know, um, I I know, you know, having read the book, we will get into in a great deal of detail that you're a parent since you just mentioned it. So as a parent and a happiness researcher, I had to ask you, what is the key to raising happy and well-adjusted kids, especially because we have so many parents who listen to this show? Absolutely. So I think a lot about this. I I study it. I try to live it. I'm trying to recreate it um, on a daily basis. And it certainly, I certainly have picked up some interesting tools and strategies from the field of positive psychology that I use every day. Like I wind up working with my kids on practicing gratitude constantly. So my kids now are nine, seven, and four. And I've been doing this about probably three years with each of them. So when we go to bed at night, um, we'll say our prayers and then I'll ask the kids to say something that they're grateful for, three things they're grateful for. And they are so good at it now. And I think that it's because they're trying to delay their bedtimes. They're uh, exceptionally professional (laughs) (laughs) knowing that that's mommy's weakness. But um, I I think that it is one of those proud moments as a mom that even if they are playing me by trying to stay up later, they can rattle off gratitudes like nobody's business. And for me, that's a huge win because we know from the field of positive psychology that you can't think both negatively and positively at the same exact moment. So even though my middle child is one of the more um, anxious children that I know, she worries a lot. She's um, concerned about whether or not she's good enough or loved enough or strong enough or smart enough. And particularly for her, the gratitudes have been so transformational. Um, When she tries to draw a picture and she winds up crumpling up the picture because she didn't do it quite right. She's able to actually look for the good in that moment and refer back to it later. And that, that development is so much more important to me um, than whether she makes straight A's at school or whether she's an, an exceptional athlete. I think that character development is really clutch. Hmm. Okay, so you, I, I knew that I would. There's no way I was going to be able to get out of this conversation without asking you about <laughs> education because you you brought it up, and and you know I <clears throat> I'm always curious from the perspective of somebody who is a positive psychology researcher and a parent. I mean, how do you think about education in its current form, and what is the role that the work that you guys are doing at GoodThink, um, like what is the role of it in our education system? 
So I've thought a lot about this as well. We wind up speaking to a number of schools through GoodThink, and I have spent some time reading our children's book, Ripple's Effect, to a number of um, elementary audiences as well. So I've got both the teacher and administrator perspective and the young people perspective on this. Um, I think that we have been taught for so long through the education system that we have to be successful in order to be happy. Something Sean talks about constantly in the happiness advantage, um, that if you are, if you work hard, then you'll be successful. And once you're successful, then you'll be happy. And so there's this drive that we hear about with the tiger mom philosophy about work, work, work. And then you're trying to get to this place um, that eventually you'll be set enough, whether it's through a college scholarship or through a great job that you've arrived and you've made it. And I think that that philosophy, number one, we know from positive psychology, it's backwards. We know that the brain actually performs better when it's happier first. And that's what leads to success, not the other way around. But I think that it's worth looking at why we got to this place originally. And as I researched this, I discovered that way back um, when we were trying to build uh, the Sputnik um, spaceship to get to space first. We were competing against um, countries like Russia to get to space first. And there was some interesting developments in the Department of Education that led to trying to push beyond other countries in the science, technology, engineering, math departments to be able to make that happen. And there were actual uh, recruiting recruiting meetings where recruiters would travel around the country and find young people that they could handpick to f- start funneling into those fields so that we could then get ahead of Russia for the space program. And what happened is that as we started to create those standards, there was that was the beginning of standardized testing. That was the beginning of America looking into how do we as a nation raise our our scores? How do we make our schools better? How do we judge whether or not we're having great performance? Which is, in some ways, such a good conversation, and in other ways, such a harmful and unhelpful conversation. Because education is so much about discovery and creativity and learning for the sake of learning, not uh, not trying to get ahead of another country. And and I think that the byproduct that we're seeing now is a generation of people our age who've been raised thinking that this formula was the way that we're supposed to work. We work hard and then we'll be happy. But I want to rewrite that rule for the next generation. And I want to teach them through the work that we're doing in positive psychology that if you're happy now, then you can be more successful. But the key is to focus on the process and not the outcome. Um, so that's that's one part of it. I think the other part is really Um, encouraging kids in their natural um, capacity to be compassionate individuals, um, to tune into their emotions on a level where they're aware of their mindfulness, they're aware of how they're feeling, they can express and feel comfortable and encouraged to have emotions, and that they are okay to feel positive. Uh, We did a study with adults who were working in some of the Fortune 500 companies through training industry, and they we asked them how many of them felt like they were held back by negative social scripts at work, and 58% of employees said that they felt held back by this this sense of a negative social script. And and a social script is sort of these unwritten rules that we have in society where, say, you walk into an elevator and you are in the elevator with one other individual. You don't want to make them feel awkward. So what do we do? We 
very quickly look down at our feet. You might nod a hello very quietly, stand on the opposite side of the elevator, and most likely pull out your cell phone and seem really busy, right? <laughs> this is the, the social script for elevator behavior. Um, but we have lots of social scripts. We have them in our workplace, but we also have them in our schools that say, this is how we're supposed to interact. And I want to set some new social scripts for education that say positivity is encouraged, emotions are encouraged, the expression of um, your emotions in healthy ways is not only important, but actually valued and vital to your success. And that happiness has a function within education that's so important. It's why one in four Harvard students wound up taking the Science of Happiness course, um, much to their parents' surprise and shock when they got their tuition bills. They said, why are you, are you taking a course on happiness and not economics? And it's for this very reason, because at the top of the educational apex here, we're finding that we wish we had learned about happiness long, long ago. So let's, re- let's rewrite this now. Yeah, I, I, I kind of wish I had learned about it when I was a freshman in college because, you know, I, I can look back at college now and I have some fond memories of it, but I wouldn't call it the happiest time of my life. I wish, you know, that I had known what, um, you know, I've learned from from the work that you have done, the work that Sean has done and the work that Michelle has done, because I think it would have given me a much different perspective on the entire experience of college. Exactly. Absolutely. There was a, an artist named Chino Otsuka who photoshops pictures of herself as an adult into pictures of herself from her childhood. So in a photo, you'll see an older and version, younger version of herself. And she's phenomenal at recreating shadows and coloring and, and fusing pictures. But she has this theme to her photography of what I wish I knew back then. And when I think about that, what I wish I had known back in college, like you say, is that 90% of our happiness is actually determined not by our genes or environment, but by our perception of the world, by our ability to see a certain scenario as positive and not just negative, or to be able to see positive and negative, but to give priority to the positive messages in my life. And I think that there is just, um, there's no limit to the amount that we could have this message reinforced in our society to overcome what we've been taught for the last couple decades. Mm. Well, I think that makes a a perfect setup for one other question that I knew I wanted to ask you. um, And it is around depression and mental health issues. And, you know, it's funny because I, I, you know, sometime in 2014, and for anybody who's read my book, you, you know about this, I I got to a period of pretty severe depression due through like to to circumstances in my life, like a a relationship that didn't work out, uh, um, you know, financial challenges and all sorts of stuff. And for the life of me, no matter how hard I tried, no matter, you know, how many times I even returned to all my self-help books and going through the happiness advantages, it got to the point where I was like, the only way I I had to take medication because I hadn't slept in, you know, months. Um, Mm. I was like on a downward spiral practically. So I'm really curious, um, you know, I understand from, you know, how these things become daily habits, but I'm curious when we're in this sort of place of not being able to self-help or, you know, get out of our, get out of depression solely through, um, you know, sort of positive habits. I'm wondering what your research has shown about that. Well, I've definitely been there too. And and thank you for your transparency with the audience about what your experiences have been, because I think that many, many people have struggled with depression. And if you haven't personally been through it, you know somebody very close to you who has. So when we say sometimes that happiness is a choice, we've heard a lot of people push back and say, you know, that that sounds great and everything, but when you're really depressed, it's really hard to get to that place of a choice. Um, 
I also have taken antidepressants. I think that sometimes they can be incredibly useful to help when you get to that place where you can make a choice again. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that there's also some practices you can use to get yourself trained before you hit depression and to pull yourself out of depression. Um, Gratitudes are, are a wonderful way to start there. Journaling is hugely important because you are able to capture the most meaningful parts of your life. Um, and it can just take two minutes to journal to like write just a quick snippet about something meaningful to you, even in the midst of everything else seeming non-meaningful, right? Um, to find that one thing and to hang on to it because those moments of gratitude or those moments of meaning are what become like a ladder out of a dark hole for you, right? Mm-hmm. Each gratitude, each journal entry becomes a step and a rung on that ladder, and it can take you back to a place that you wanted to be. But um, I think as well, it takes a lot of social support, friends, family, coworkers, individuals in your lives who are um, engaged and invested in making sure that you are healthy. Um, I know that a number of the individuals we see and hear about in the news who um, wind up having a break, right? They they do so because they're loners, they're isolated, they haven't had that kind of support. Um, social support is the single greatest predictor of long-term happiness, um, along with the way that you see stress and your optimism in life. So that social support and that sense of outlook become hugely, hugely important. Um so yeah, that those are my my best advice on that. Okay, well, I, I'd love to get now um, into the book, but I want to start by asking what prompted your interest um, in the idea of the future of happiness in particular. Interesting. So you know, we speak at Good Think to audiences all over the globe. We've traveled to over 50 countries now. We've had the opportunity to speak to audiences from uh, the Super Soul Sunday sessions to getting to talk at the White House or Google, MBA, uh, as well as working with school children in Soweto, South Africa, a women's college in Dubai, talking to um, high school groups. I mean, really, we've, we've spoken to the gamut. And I think that what has been so interesting to me is that when we started the company, the questions really centered around the uncertainty that people were feeling in the midst of the greatest economic recession since the Great Depression. That was 2007 when our company started. Um, in recent years, the question has turned significantly to less about uncertainty about the future to more of how do I deal with distraction in my environment? How do I deal with feeling overwhelmed with the digital devices and the expectations from employers and friends about communication? And I think the reason that these topics are rising up now is because our brains are just now catching up to the trends that were happening with innovation. We know from the more than more than more strategy, actually it was originally called the more strategy that said that the microchips were speeding up every single year. Um, They were doubling in speed. And now the idea is that the innovations come flooding into our lives so rapidly, but our happiness hasn't been able to keep pace. And part of the reason I think it hasn't kept pace is because we don't really have a rubric for how to interact with this quantity and level and depth of technology in our lives. And so as I got more and more questions from audiences I spoke to about this, I, I started to dig into it 
um, dig into the research and dig into some of the, the best and the worst of technology and what it's doing to our minds and our happiness levels. And, um, and throwing myself into this, I realized it was a question I had for myself. It's a, the book is in many ways a letter to myself about how I want to interact with the world, how I want the world to look in the future, how I want my behavior to, to become. And I hope that it helps other people through their own process of, of thinking about these things as well. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. 
Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Okay. Well, let's do this. Um, I want to get into the five key strategies. Um, do you mind giving us an overview uh, of each one and kind of how they apply in our lives? Sure. I'd be happy to. So there are five strategies in the book. Um, I tried to pick out five of the easiest strategies for people to identify with and to create change in their lives, to take information and convert it into transformation in their lives. Um, and before I jump into the five strategies, I have to give the, the background that when I wrote the book, um, I initially walked into it with the question of, is, is technology good for us or bad for us? We keep hearing these doomsday reports about how, how bad technology is, but I wanted to know, how, how bad is it really? Is it, is it really something that I should cut out of my life, or is it perhaps something that has been blown out of proportion? And so part of the first five strategies is looking into that very question about, is technology our friend or is it our foe? Is it something that can help us or hurt us? And where I came to with the book was that this is actually the wrong question. The question is not whether technology is good or whether it's bad for us. Um, I think that might have been the question a few years ago, but now technology is part of our lives. So I think the better question is, what do we do with it, <laughs> right? Um, as William Shakespeare once said, there's nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. And so I think positive psychology has some really important lessons for us to learn about what that means in terms of how we use technology and specifically what I call the how, when, where, and why of, that, of using technology in our lives. So strategy number one was, uh, is focused on staying grounded. It's about how do you focus and channel your energy with intention, knowing how how incredibly distracted we are by our devices. What can we do about it? Um, one of the most shocking statistics that I uncovered in my research was that the average cell phone user or smartphone user picks up their phone, opens it, and unlocks it 150 times a day. Now, if you think with me and conservatively estimate that each time you open and close your phone and check something, it takes you approximately one minute, that's actually two and a half hours of your day, just unlocking and locking your phone again, which is crazy, right? Like imagine what that does to our productivity. <laughs> um, if you multiply that times 365 days or, or, or times the number of hours in the year, you find that 38 days each year are spent on opening and closing your phone. So that's, <laughs> that's major, right? That's incredible distraction. That's, you know, one twelfth of our life completely different than it was 10 years ago before the smartphone hit the market. Um, so when we're thinking wow. about this level of distraction, we got to really think strongly about, okay, I know... I know technology is going to be out there. I know distractions will always be there. So what am I going to do about it? And so I focus on helping people to ground themselves with intention by plugging into what I call the, the third prong. So if you think about electricity and you plug in a, a plug into a wall, uh, if it doesn't have that third prong on it, it's very easy for the energy to not be channeled properly and for you to get shocked. Um, I think that we all are familiar with what happens when we get shocked now with too much technology in our lives and just burn out, right? Um, so the idea is to use this third prong. And, and the third prong is made up of your personal values and beliefs about the world. What is it that drives you to want to use technology in a helpful way? Do you value 
quality time? Do you value productivity? Do you value um, having the latest, greatest tools to accomplish your job? Do you value having downtime in your life? And however you create that set of values in your life, that should be what determines and helps you identify your intention about technology. So part of the book talks about the difference between uh, different tech personas that we each have. Um, We're all familiar with early adopters, people who are ready to take on the latest, greatest technology. Um, And then there's resistors. These are individuals who have been pushing back against technology for a long time. They've have been resisting getting a smartphone. They may hang on to their flip phone as like a badge of courage. Um, (laughs) And then you have acceptors. These are people who are like, you know, I don't love technology, but my boss says I have to use it. So here I am. And so they're sort of following trends, but they're not leading or resisting the trends. And what we're finding is that those tech personas actually are domain specific, right? So if you are a surgeon, you might be an early adopter for technology at work. And at home, you might be a resistor because you don't want technology in your space at home or for your kids, or it's a personal choice. So knowing that about yourself then you set intentions about, you know, when I'm at home, this is how I want to act. Or when I'm at work, this is how I want to act. Writing it down, being explicit, and then following through. And that that process sets the stage for the rest of the book. Because the rest of the book is really focused on some strategies that you can use to help you um, to use tech for those best and highest purposes as opposed to a distraction. Um, so that's strategy one. Okay. Um Crazy. Strategy two? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, 38 days. I mean, that's like a, a month long vacation. Right. It's shocking. <laughs> it's shocking. I, mean, I, I knew that I knew that it was bad um, as somebody who spent a lot of time researching this. But that is shocking. 38 days. Shocking. Like to think that you could get back 38 days of your life just by leaving your phone out of the room. Right. It's crazy. And yes, we, we make the argument to ourselves that we're being more productive by being on our phone. It means maybe we answered the emails on our phone instead of a laptop, or maybe we're able to accomplish more than we could before. But regardless, I don't want to spend 38 days unlocking and locking my phone. I just don't. <laughs> um, my other crazy stat that I uncovered was that the um, National Center for Biotechnology Information has recently reported that the human attention span has dropped below that of a goldfish. It's now only <laughs> eight seconds. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's um, very well, convicting to think about that. So I have one comment on this. You know, I, I, I went on a date um, last week sometime and I turned my phone off for the entire date. And the just the quality of the interaction was drastically different than mm-hmm. the ones I've had you know, before. Mm. And I was like, wow, I should always do this. I'm a much more charismatic person when I don't have my phone on. Mm, that's interesting. That's a, that's a great story. Um, at, at the very least, just keeping it out of line of sight. We yep. find that the mere presence of having a cell phone in your line of sight impedes communication because you're expecting that something might come through. It's like we're like Pavlov's dogs that you are so trained to hear a beep. And because so many phones have the same beep, we actually respond to other people's phones in our environment, even if it's not our own. So <laughs> I've done that. Cut that, right? It's like, oh, is that my? Oh, no, not for me. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, so setting those good boundaries for ourselves is hugely important. Cool. Um, so number two, strategy number two, ready to move on? Yes. 
Awesome. Strategy number two is all about knowing thyself. And it's a phrase that comes from um, the temple of Apollo that was inscribed in the old Greek, um, the old Greek communities with this idea that is so important to know who you are. In fact, it's the most important thing because that shapes all of your choices uh, or what I call micro decisions in your life. So if you think about every little choice you make along the way throughout your day, it's probably about 200 micro decisions that you are faced with. You know, do I wake up when my alarm first goes off or do I snooze? Do I have coffee or do I not? Do I take my usual route to work or should I take the scenic route, right? All of these little bitty choices we're making actually have major impacts and cumulative impacts on the rest of our day. And so the more you can know about who you are and what patterns you have, you're raising your consciousness about your behavior so that you can then make better choices, right? When you're not conscious of your behavior, you're just reacting. But my goal is to use technology to help us be proactive about our choices. And so some of the really cool ways that we can learn to do this is by using um using some technology apps that can help you gain that awareness without taking your time. So one of my favorite apps is called Unplugged. And the Unplugged app will actually track your usage of your phone in the background. And it'll tell you how many times you open and close your phone. It'll tell you how long you spend on each app and you know whether or not that, that was something that was a pattern over time or if it was just a limited one-time use. And what can emerge from those conversations and from that, and from, from that data Data is the ability to see how you're spending your time and what you're spending your time on. And then you can use that to start thinking, okay, well, this is where I want to be going. So I'm going to um, lose this tech and I'm going to fuse this tech into my life to make it more effective. I call it the, the plus one minus one strategy because you add, you can add good tech and take away negative tech and still wind up better than you were before. Um, even though technology is still in your life, it's how you're using it, when you're using it, why you're using it, where you're using it. And that's really important. Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that really struck me about um, that section in particular was how much you talked about wearables. And, you know, for the longest time, I wrote off wearables as just goofy things and, you know, things that people who are obsessed with themselves uh, did. Even when I told my sister about some of this, she said the only person who would want to track all that information and she's a doctor. So she's like, that makes you a hypochondriac. And I'm like, yeah, not necessarily. <laughs> um, but I, I think I, I loved kind of the fact that you talked about how, you know, knowing this information eventually causes a lot of change in behavior. It does. And I think that the conversation around this has shifted dramatically as um, wearables have become more mainstream in the market. So when we started um, wearing fitness trackers a few years ago, that was kind of a novel concept for all of us. The idea of a Fitbit, I remember feeling like it was more of an electronic bracelet that my husband could see what I was doing all day through the app. And I was like, this is, this is weird. I don't want anyone else to know this and I don't want to know it myself. Um, but very quickly I became addicted to using wearables in my life because I feel like they can provide really valuable information. And I'll, I'll tell you a quick story about it. Um, one of the apps that I tried out in the course of writing my book is called the Spire Stone. And it's this little lava rock that has a clip on the back that attaches to your belt loop or your bra strap. And it measures your breathing and it studies your breathing to tell you whether you're feeling tense or calm or focused or anxious. And it can kind of tell by your breath patterns how you're feeling. So I was testing it out for about a week when 
I learned that my kids were having a pool party at home with my husband, who's a pediatrician, and, and some unfortunate circumstances, my younger daughter managed to jump into the pool on top of my older daughter and broke her neck. And by the time I got home from being out of town and hearing the story, fortunately, most of it had had resolved and, and we knew that she was going to be okay. But um, she still had a tiny bone broken off in her neck. And so on Monday morning, I had the privilege of taking her to the doctor to go get fitted for a neck brace. And this whole time, I was keeping it together pretty well. I, I didn't really know how bad it was going to be. Um, but she got fitted for a neck brace. We're walking out of the hospital and all of a sudden my spire stone starts vibrating. So like throughout this whole process, it hadn't vibrated. But right then as we walked out of the hospital, it vibrated and it said, you're feeling tense. And so I paused and I was like, I'm feeling tense really now of all times. <laughs> and what I realized was I was actually really tense about how other people were going to think about me as a mom of a child with a broken neck, because that was the first time someone saw me and my daughter in public with her neck brace on. And I'm kind of ashamed to say that, but it was a, a genuine mommy moment that that struck me. And it enabled me to raise my awareness in about 30 seconds and to completely pivot and switch my perspective on that to say, hey, you know what? It's okay to acknowledge I'm feeling a little tense about this or anxious about it, but I need to be there for my daughter right now. So let me focus on that. And so that process probably would have taken me about a week or more to uncover before. I might have continued that behavior for several days before realizing I was even feeling that. But the Spire Stone was able to just have a quick vibration to remind me, hey, something's going on. You need to pay attention to it. Um, that was one of the first times I really felt like a wearable was super valuable to my sense of awareness and identity um, and helped me make some better choices in about 30 seconds flat. Wow. You, you yeah. makes me want to buy one. Like I, I'm thinking to myself, as you described that, I was like, wow, I would probably be able to figure out what my most sort of optimal times of day are when I'm going to be the most productive and focused and calm. Absolutely. Um, it also helped me realize when I wasn't breathing, which uh -huh. apparently is a lot. <laughs> I, uh, I was surprised. I am kind of an anxious person naturally. And so my breath patterns, I knew that this might be helpful to me. Um, but to be able to see it in real time and to be able to short circuit that pattern really quickly by watching in real time, my breath patterns go up and down. I was able to remember to breathe on a much more natural basis than just stopping to meditate once a day. I felt like that kind of feedback loop was really important. Um, but I'll say that, you know, part of the process of learning about wearables is that not every wearable is for every person. And in fact, in the process of testing these wearables, my nightstand turned into a sort of Niagara Falls of wires and cords <laughs> and charging devices. And I literally hated looking at the pile of them um, because I felt like overwhelmed by just the quantity of helpful tech right there, right? Like I'm not using it. I need to be using it. I'm supposed to be testing this. Um, but I think that my new strategy having emerged from this process is to pick one technology that would be helpful for me based on my intention and try to use it for 21 days to form a lifelong habit and then move on. Don't, don't wear it a wearable for the rest of your life. Um, that would 
be just an imposition on, on who you are, but just use it for a short term um, investment in becoming a better version of yourself. Um, whether it's a, a posture trainer that helps you learn how to sit up straighter or something that helps you breathe better or that helps you drink more water. There's so many different apps out there, but I strongly suggest just picking one and sticking with it and seeing how that works for you. Okay. So let's get into the, the other three, the train your brain, creating a habitat for happiness and conscious innovation. You got it. So strategy number three, training your brain. And this, this chapter and strategy is all about how we can use technology to actually help us um, build blocks towards a happier, smarter mind. And part of the strategy here was to use the Happify stage framework, which stands for savor, think, aspire, give and empathize. So these are five skill sets, emotional skill sets that have been identified as being keys to helping you develop a happier, healthier mindset. And so I I centered this strategy around tech and apps that specifically can help you infuse positive behaviors in your life in those domains. And the same strategy goes with this. Pick one. Do you want to learn how to savor better or do you want to learn how to give more? Um, If you do, pick one app, try it out and move on from there. And what we're trying to do here is to train your brain through constant reminders using um, positive notifications, not as distractions, but as reminders to get to somewhere we want to be. Because we know that simply writing down goals increases the likelihood that you will accomplish them by 42%. So having an app then increases that percentage of accomplishing them even more. It's that accountability check that sometimes can be really, really important on our lives. Um, But it only works if you're really, really focused, not if you're trying out 400 apps like I was at one point. That's (laughs) not a good idea. (laughs) Very cool. Um, And then what about the idea of um, creating a habitat for happiness? Habitat for Happiness. This is one of my favorite chapters because it comes out of the idea, um, it comes out of my work with Habitat for Humanity. Um, I had the opportunity to speak with CEO Jonathan Reckford a few years ago, and Jonathan was sharing with me that at Habitat, a lot of times the way that they build a community is not just around building a house, right? It's not just even around having volunteers build a house for someone else. It's around creating sweat equity to create an environment that sets you up for success. And so when I look at our habitats that were around us, you have to think about different spaces that we operate and live and work in, right? So you've got spaces we learn in, spaces we work in, spaces we live in. And each one of these spaces has has opportunities for us to use the external environment to influence our happiness levels. So it's interesting, a few years ago, Sean spoke in the happiness advantage about how the external environment does not dictate our happiness levels. It's actually only responsible for about 10% of our happiness. And so we focus so strongly on the other 90%, which is our perception of the world. But with this chapter, I really wanted to come back and focus on, well, let's not forget that 10%. It's actually it does impact our happiness levels. So what can we do to raise our happiness within that 10%? And so the book walks through some strategies um, at work for how do you set up an office environment to help people be happier? How do you set up your house? Um, And I actually get into one of my favorite concepts, which is decluttering your house of digital devices or what I call the, the digital graveyard 
um, because that so much technology has flooded our lives that our homes are actually becoming these reservoirs of, of wires and cords that we don't know what to do with. We don't know how to get rid of them. They're blocking us from having space to bring in new technologies. And so I felt like part of setting up a habitat for happiness in our homes was actually creating a system to deal with this information flood so that we can then be more organized and not overwhelmed by our technology. And I go through the same process with the spaces we learn in. How do we learn better? How do we use technology in a way that adds to how we learn and not takes away from it? Um, that's, that section is just rich with some really um, detailed ideas for how you can hack your own habitat to make it more happy. So I want to dig deeper into this because this, yes. it was absolutely one of my favorite sections and I'm, you know, incredibly aware of, of my external environments. You know, I have like framed prints of the people that I've interviewed hung on my wall, the ones that inspired me the most. And I make sure there's absolutely no clutter at all in my environment. And I'm amazed by how different I feel when I wake up in the morning because this room is immaculate. Mm. Uh, you know, my parents are, are really funny in that they have a garage full of stuff and, you know, we've put in storage shelves. There's, you know, additional storage shelves. I'm like, do you even know what all this crap is? And the answer is no. <laughs> no. So why don't you just throw it out? <laughs> um, but I'm curious. I know you talked specifically about even uh, digital environments, like setting up your computer, you know, kind of the, you, I know you did a lot of research around checking email and social media and the impact on our mental health. So I'd love to, to hear kind of, you know, what your research revealed about those because I think that would be really impactful for people listening. Yeah, so the the idea of having digital clutter is that, or any sort of clutter in your environment, is that it actually makes you less productive and feel less happy over time. Um, there are always those outliers who really thrive in a, in a messy environment like Steve Jobs. And for him, it was his perception of his environment that actually made him happier. He's one of the rare individuals I've heard who said that he felt like a clean room meant that he wasn't doing enough stuff. And a messy room meant that he was really um, onto something important. So um, that worked for him. Maybe That's it ironic, for too, people. don't you think, right? considering the simplicity of Apple products? Exactly. And the design elements, it's all about simplicity. Um, so maybe he translated his worlds or flipped them. But in my personal life, I'm like you. I work so much better when I have things organized. I can access them. I feel more inspired. And so in this chapter, I really tried to focus on how do you organize your computer? How do you organize your email? How do you deal with old devices down to where do you recycle things? How do you destroy an old hard drive? How do you um, upcycle so that we don't waste devices. Um, and I feel like that process is so key because so many of my friends that are my age now are in the same boat. We have, we have boxes of cassette tapes and <laughs> I don't know what to do with them. Right. Or, or old VHS tapes. And, you know, you, you pretend like these things don't bother you, but the idea that you are going to get to it someday is this sort of self-defeating um, reminder every time you see them that says, oh, you still haven't done that, huh? <laughs> you know, so like, how, how do we deal with this? Because now we've got it originally, it went from VHS to digitized videos, right? And now I have so many digitized videos, thanks to my iPhone being an amazing camera. I don't know how to find the videos that I've created. And then I feel like I feel nervous that I'm going to lose them. And in fact, when you lose your data, it feels almost like somebody that you know is dying, right? Or has died um, because there's so much wrapped up in your work and your memories and your, um, your, your key documents that you've been meaning to hang on to. So 
finding a peace of mind, a sense of peace of mind about knowing your things are backed up, knowing you can access what you want to access. It all generates greater feelings of happiness. And so having that system is actually crucial to being able to do other things that create happiness in your life. So I, I know you mentioned uh, some statistics and, and things that you discovered from checking email and social media in terms of, of how to reduce anxiety and increase happiness. And um, I was wondering if you could share those because I remember those those in particular struck a chord with me. Yeah. So I know that checking your email, if you are able to check your email just three times a day, that increases your productivity levels by 23%. Um, if you are able to be able to batch your email processing, that's that's super important because if you're checking your email constantly, then your your mind is never shutting down and never giving you time to deal with the information you've got on hand. So that, that part of the process, um, we definitely discovered, makes a big difference. And the more that you're able to create systems to eliminate distractions in your life, whether shutting off notifications that um, are coming from apps that specifically I, I encourage people to turn off notifications that are from non-humans meaning if it's simply an app that says don't forget to do this um, for the most part we have a lot of those apps and notifications coming through on our computer and on our phones and reminding us constantly so that we can't focus and, and find that place of deep focus to continue to do our work. And the same thing happens with email. Um, we focus in a lot about getting rid of spam messages or, you know, reading through newsletters or news feeds, or social media feeds. But the key is that we're trying to get down to the most important work. And Cal Newport writes in his book, Deep Focus, about this idea of attention residue, mm -hmm. that we are losing this attention residue everywhere because we're so scattered. And so what we're trying to do is regain that attention and consolidate it so that we can actually be more effective. Mm -hmm. All right. And the fifth one is conscious innovation. Yes, conscious innovation. So this is a toss-up. Number four and number five are, are by far my favorite chapters in the book. Um, I ended with conscious innovation, though, because I think that it is the global topic. It's, it's taking this conversation about the future of happiness out of your own personal life and starting to think about how we as humans can interact um, on a grand, grander scale to think about happiness. How do we impact each other? Um, in, in psychology, we talk about the idea of mirror neurons that shape our ability to interact emotionally with other people in a room and that a positive or negative emotion like smiling or sighing can actually spread through a room in about two minutes. So if we know that emotions can spread like that, how do we think about how happiness can spread and what our role specifically is in that. And so I challenge people in this chapter to think about how they can use their own innate power to shape the future. And I share stories of some incredible individuals who've done just that. Um, there's an individual named Doc Henley who used to be a bartender, wanted to make a difference in the world. And so he wound up creating a different way to create clean water based on the things he'd learned from bartending. He's not um, he's not a technology expert. He wasn't even an inventor. He had no business background. And yet here he was able to use something that was right there in his sphere to create and make a huge difference for people all over, all over the world who needed water. Or there's a young girl named Allie who is a junior in high school who had learned about 3D printing online. And so she went and took um, an online course on how do you do 3D printing to help create prosthetic hands for children in need. And she spoke to her teacher at school and got the whole class involved. They wound up 
doing a summer program where they printed 12 hands for children in need all over the world, where each hand only cost about $30 to print, but the manual labor and the time and the knowledge that was created there was able to be replicated to help so many other kids just through um, just through the process of learning on the computer. Didn't have any expertise or knowledge prior to that. So I think that there's ways that each of us can make an impact. And I think this conversation is crucial because when we think about where we want to be 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now, do we want to look like a society where technology is something that divides us, that keeps us from having those great conversations on dinner dates? Or do we want to have children who are zoned out or throwing tech tantrums in the middle of Target? Or do we want to have a society where we envision that people are using technology co to connect for higher purposes? They're collaborating, they're serving as catalysts, they're Read, reading up on um, organizations that are using great consumer practices. They're, um, they're engaging with their civic government to be able to alert the city about things that they know of in their neighborhood or to save lives of people right down the street from them who need help all of a sudden. This, this for me, is a sweet spot of where technology offers so much potential. And the only way that we can tap into that potential is by truly activating each one of us to work within our own sphere to think about what we can do, how we can help others, and then how do we consciously and intentionally create that future together. Wow. Um, well, this has been mind-blowingly cool, as I expected it would be. Uh, just, you know, when Sean referred to you, I, I, I knew if he recommended anybody. And then the fact that you're a sister made it even more interesting. <laughs> um, but this has been just truly amazing. I mean, you've packed it with so much wisdom and insight. So I have one last question, which is how we finish all our interviews at The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Unmistakable. I think what makes somebody unmistakable is their perception of the world. Mm. I think we know that individuals each see the world in a different way. We can all hear the same information. We can go to the same places, but we all perceive it differently based on our experience. So to be able to create a sense of perception that's so finely attuned to others around you is something that makes you more creative and lifts you up to be able to be a unique individual offering something amazing to society. Well, I think that makes a really fitting end to our conversation. Um, where can people learn more about you, uh, the book, and your work? Awesome. Well, I would love for them to come join me on my website. It's amyblankson.com. Or you can check out the book at futureofhappiness.com. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that, and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.